Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Great to see you today, friends. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are visiting, then we're really glad that you are. If you come every week, then we're really glad that you do. And uh, we're in a series on on 1 Corinthians, this letter that a guy called Paul wrote uh, a couple of thousand years ago. It's really letter one, maybe, in this thing called the New Testament church. The, The church starts springing up all over the place after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and Paul is one of the people that goes different places and plants churches and then has to do somewhat of the awkward work of going back to them and letting them know all the things that they are doing wrong. While this is the first letter that Paul writes, it's actually very similar to some of the others. I found this delightful summary of almost every single Paul of one of Paul's letters. We begin with grace. We move on to, I thank God for you. We move on to hold fast of the gospel. Then we move to, for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And then we quite often finish with, Timothy says hi. Timothy's like Paul's co-worker, and it's just, that's the, 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 the casual ending. That, that summarizes neatly almost everything. Lost in that is, is this big theological idea that Paul follows. He gives us what's called an indicative and an imperative. Because of this, the indicative, because Jesus has done all of these things, because of some of the things on that list, you should be different people. Like that's the movement that we get over and over again. Jesus has done this. This has happened. Now move into a different way of living. Paul's asks are often hard, but he captures the ethics of Jesus and and seems constantly to be trying to wrestle with these questions. How does the church thrive when the culture around it is different? When other cultures surround it, what what does the church look like? Maybe we would phrase it uh, like this. For for them, they were wrestling with uh, what does the way of Jesus look like in Corinth in AD 52? We are wrestling with what does the way of Jesus look like in Littleton in 2022? Maybe there's some similarities. I would suggest there's lots of similarities, but there's also some differences too. And and for the most part, Paul Paul is intrigued, it seems, by these questions. Do we blend in or do we stand apart? See, there's times where whether you know it or not, we blend in and and maybe that's appropriate. We, We don't wear clothing from AD 52, or at least most of us don't wear clothing from AD 52. I know some of us are out of touch fashion-wise, but not that far out of touch fashion-wise, but, but, but the ways that we blend in with the culture around us. And then there's other ways where we stand out, where the way of Jesus looks different to the prevailing cultures, and that's what Paul will wrestle with over and over and over again. What does the way of Jesus look like? So we've wrestled with that as Paul has talked about Jesus' sexual ethic that he brings. We've wrestled with him as he talks about this incredibly hard ethic that we looked at last week, uh, turn the other cheek. What does that mean for society? As an individual, I can do that, but what does it look like to do that as a, as a society? It gets complex, right? And, and now we move to one which, which on the surface we would read and say, that has nothing to do with us. 
today. That doesn't, ha- doesn't cause a problem for us right now. The first sentence we read is, now about food sacrificed to idols. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you guys ate food sacrificed to idols this morning for breakfast? Anyone in the house? That, no? It's, it's not a problem, right? We don't, we don't struggle with that. What, what, why do we read this today, or what do we do with this when we read it today? Because while it wasn't a problem for us, contextually, for this first church, it, it was a huge problem. Paul begins with this idea of food and sacrifice to idols, and he's going to have a whole conversation around it. When, when the church began, it began in the city of Jerusalem and started to spread to other places, and quickly they found that cultures were very different, and the church would land in different cultural places. How do you keep unity when you're all from different places and different spaces? So uh, the church in Jerusalem, the leaders of that church, decided, we're going to write to some of these churches and we're going to give them some broad guidelines for how to live. And, and as someone who follows Jesus, you might say there seems like there's lots of rules. And you might be surprised at how few rules there are in this original letter. This is Acts chapter 15. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch, a, church with an, a city with an early church, with Paul and Barnabas. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. Some people had gone off to some of these other churches and started to give them a whole list of rules that they had now to obey, and this is a clarification letter. Troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. This is it. This is how they describe living in the way of Jesus in this moment, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell, letter over, the list is complete. That's what we got from this list. Food sacrificed to idols, number one, blood, the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. That's what they're supposed to do. That was the command of this church in Jerusalem. And then something begins to happen. Some shift begins to take place. Slowly over time, as these, this church spreads to all these other cultures, there becomes a new question around food sacrificed to idols, especially around meat sacrificed to idols. What's if, what if that's the only meat you can get? What if there isn't another option? What if that's all there is, and what happens if you're, you're really poor, and so the only time you can, go, you can go and get meat is in specific times where there was a big festival in the city, and, and what would happen in towns like Corinth is that people would bring their sacrifices to the array of different Greek pantheon gods, and the, the priests would sacrifice the sacrifices. They would sell the meat in the marketplace to make money, and for one week out of every few months, the marketplace would become saturated with meat. And suddenly, poor everyday people, of which many of the early Christians were, suddenly for one moment, they have access to something that they never have at other times. And the question became, well, is it okay 
den. The, the marketplace in Corinth was surrounded by temples. They, it lived in the shadow of temples. And so one historian wandering through Corinth chose to count all of the, the gods that had temples around the marketplace just to get a sense of where the meat came from. And they counted Dionysus, Artemis, Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Zeus the Most High, Zeus of the Underworld, Zeus and the Muses, and on and on and on and on. If you wanted meat in Corinth, there was no meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. So what were you supposed to do? Did you just not eat meat? Or did you eat it? Anyway, the church wrestled with these kind of mundane questions. And so Paul tells us, I'm going to talk to you about food sacrificed to idols. And then he doesn't talk about food sacrificed to idols. He shifts his focus almost straight away to the subject of knowledge, which, as it turns out, is deeply related to what he's going to ask this early church to do, the difficult ask he's going to make of them. And maybe he has a difficult ask for you and I today in 2022. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Any time in this Corinthian letter that you see something in quotation marks, it's Paul quoting the Corinthians back to him. They've written him at least one letter, maybe two, with all of their sort of quirky beliefs. And he writes back to them, takes a little snapshot of what they've said and said, hmm, you're a little off base here, guys. Let me work with you. We know we all possess knowledge. It's this word that's very popular in this Corinthian church. There's there's a few. Gnosis is one of them. For them, it's not just knowledge. It's a recognition that they believed every follower of Jesus had access to to a particular knowledge. We're invited into this new way of living. That that was how they would reflect it. And, And Paul wrestles with just how much knowledge they actually have. And then throws this wonderful nugget at them that maybe hits close to a home for us in 2022. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And I take that from Paul, I'm like, ouch. Yes, that hits close to home. Don't, don't we do that as individuals and as, a, and as a society? I love when a conversation comes up and I think I know something about this subject. And as a man, I've noticed I also have a tendency when I don't know something about the subject to speak as though I might just know something about the subject. Apparently this is known as male answer syndrome and many of us may suffer from it. In the room there is a tendency to at least pose that we have knowledge. We, we, we send people off to academic institutions and we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to build knowledge in education. And, and this question that we'll wrestle with today has even been wrestled with at the highest levels of academia. Some, some years ago, the president of Harvard actually wrestled publicly with, is all we're doing just conveying knowledge? Because we have to convey how you live as well. It seems like knowledge has this tendency to, to puff us up. There's something about knowing that we're like, ah, I just love to know. It reminds me of back in school. For those of you who can remember this far back, maybe this picture means something to you. Did you ever do the thing where they gave you pasta and paint and you got to paint bits of pasta and maybe you put glitter on it or something like that and you put it all on a card and that was like the way you achieved in that particular grade? You made a card with glitter and you took it home and and maybe it made it onto the fridge and that was a a moment for celebration. And then you moved up a couple of grades. 
And he started doing different things. I don't know if they still use blackboards anymore. I'd love some kind of assurance that they do. Uh, but, but you start to write on sentences, and maybe you start to read books about a boy who runs or a dog who has a ball or all those different things, and you start to circle the different words, and you're now building sentences. And there's this moment where you've got that knowledge, and suddenly you look back at the first graders and the second graders who are still playing with pasta and sprinkles, and you have this moment where you say, ah, they're such babies. Remember when we were back there doing the pasta and sprinkles thing? And yet almost nobody has a moment where they can reflect. Still not much further down the journey. While the teacher may be messing around with these books and sentences with me, the teacher knows so much more and is so much further ahead on that journey, unless the myth is true and teachers actually just stay one step ahead of all the students. I don't know if that's true at all, but, but, but there, there is this recognition that knowledge very quickly puffs up and we learn something and very quickly look down on those that haven't quite got the knowledge that we have yet. Knowledge puffs up and Paul says, love builds up. And then he goes on to say this, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. This is probably a mistranslation. There's probably a couple of words added and back in the earliest historical resources, this is what it would read. Whoever loves this person truly knows. Whoever loves this person truly knows. The one who loves truly knows. Paul takes knowledge and he takes love and he says knowledge is fine to a degree but it quickly puffs up. There's a much more superior way and he'll land on this for the next couple of chapters. If you have been obsessed with knowledge as I often have, there's a recollection here or a recognition that, that sometimes Paul's like, yeah, knowledge is fine but, but there's something else that you can't leave behind. And then he's going to unpack this around the question he said he would start with. So we go back to food sacrificed to idols. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, this time he actually talks about it. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Again, something that this Corinthian church was proud of saying as they ate the meat sacrificed to idols. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, we could take the parentheses there and do like a whole series on the mystery of what is he talking about with these many gods and many lords? We don't have time today. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul, is, he surrenders the point to a certain degree. Jesus is everything. Jesus is center of all. That is the thing that I want you to focus on, but, but with Paul there's so often a but, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled, but food does not bring us near to God we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Paul says, I take your point. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter where the meat came from. Not important, but, but not everybody agrees. What do you do when not everybody agrees? What, if, what do you do when there's people in your community that think, I, I feel like this is a big deal? 
How do you operate then? How do you all live in harmony then? And Paul's going to bring us to some advice. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Paul says, not only does knowledge puff up, there's a possibility that knowledge also tears down somebody else as well. By learning more, you could do damage to the people around you, is his heartfelt plea. For if you, with a weak conscience, sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge destroyed by your knowledge. Paul takes knowledge and says when it's just operated for its own sake, it very quickly makes you superior and potentially damages other people around you. What does that mean for us today? Is there similar circumstances? How do we take this and pull it in today's context? Recognizing that none of you eat meat sacrificed to idols, and I don't have a problem with it either, so we could quite comfortably all partake of that if we were able to without any worries whatsoever. So I want to give you a different scenario. I want to make you think about maybe another way we could approach this. Have you ever had a friend that was able to make you do anything that they wanted you to do. Maybe in this room we have all of the influences, I don't know. Maybe you think back across friendships and you're like, no, no, I was the one that was getting my friends to do all the things that they shouldn't do, not the other way around. Or maybe you ended up marrying the person that could get you to do anything that you wanted them to do. Or maybe you have a fifth kid because you married someone that could get you to do anything that you wanted them to do. But somewhere maybe you have a picture of someone in mind who was able to talk you into anything. They would just come and whisper in your ear and say, we should do this. And you, you just quickly just, you went along with it. You just fell for it every single time. I have, I've had a few friends like this in my life. But I remember particularly being about five years old. And, and I was brought up in a family where I was first born, very classically first born. I did all of the right stuff, at least on the surface. And I remember being at school one day and we were in the field where, which backed up into someone's house. And, and my friend Lewis came to me and he said, guy just replaced his fence. We should go and we should kick a hole in it. Like, I don't think he wants us to do that, if I'm honest. Like, I was, again, I was very just gentle conscience kid. I was like, I, I don't know. And, uh, and the, the band Grand Commanders just released a song called I Kicked a Hole in Your Fence, which beautifully gave me an image to work with. Uh, and they have these lyrics, I kicked a hole in your fence. I kicked a hole in your fence. I swung my boot until it cracked. I kicked a hole in your fence. The rest of the song descends to kind of madness, which we didn't follow, but, but we did do that. I was pulled aside by this guy who could get me to do anything, and he told me this is going to be fine. Nobody's even going to care. It's just a fence. Now, all the time, like circling in my mind is there's no way this is the right behavior, but, but I, I went along with it. And there was the moment of kicking the fence, which, if I'm honest, was delicious. I, I don't know why destruction appeals so much to small boys, but there was a moment of kicking that fence where I, I felt just the complete joy of those lyrics. I didn't know the guy, 
But if I had have known him, I would have said, I kicked a hole in your fence. I kicked a hole in your fence. And, and if I'm honest, it felt great for a while. And then there was the moment after the hole was in the fence. There was, some of you, now you're property owners. Now I'm a property owner. I'm like, I was a horrific child. Like, what's wrong with me? I'm deeply passionate about fences. Apparently, that's how you know you're an adult when you care about things like fence lines and things like that. But I, I remember that moment of my conscience getting to me. And I remember deeply the moment where the principal called a special assembly and, and said, someone's done this to somebody else's property and I need you to come and own up now. And I remember the singeing, burning feel inside me of just horror at what I'd done. Paul suggests that whether the meat for idols is a problem or not, that's the potential scenario. Potential scenario is if you think you know better about something, you come along someone else and, and, and you pull them into it, the potential is they walk away feeling just as I felt. And whether it was right or wrong, something inside is now broken and a little bit warped. Somewhere he's talking about the theme of relationship and how we all relate to each other, how we interact with each other. And so while he said he was talking about food and idols, and then he goes on to talk about knowledge, I actually wonder if he isn't really talking about freedom. I wonder if he isn't talking about freedom and how that works in a community. Now, this word freedom is another popular word for this Corinthian church. This Greek word eleutheria is, is the sense that every Christian is free in Christ. You are free and I am free. And, and that immediately sounds great to me. And, and maybe living in this country where we love the word freedom, this could also be translated liberty, which comes straight out of the Constitution, right, I think. Uh, you guys know it by heart, I'm sure. But, but think about some of these quotes that... Speak to the joy of freedom. Most Diane says this, freedom is the oxygen of the soul. Charlotte Bronte said, I am no burden, no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will. The Constitution, as I said, talks about the, the, the freedom for speech, for religion, for press, for assembly, and the right to petition the government. Well, we love language around freedom. But a question for us. Is freedom a Christian principle? And the answer is yes. And also a resounding, hmm, it's complicated. It's complicated. On one hand, it is that we see this as Paul starts to unpack what Jesus has done for us, for you and for I in, uh, to a church in Galatia. He writes this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. If you have grown up in oppressive religion, you have felt what it is to know slavery. If you have grown up with all of the rules around skirt length and hair length and all of those different things, and I've definitely had conversations around hair length being a guy with long hair, and you've maybe felt the sense of, uh, of religion as slavery, as oppression as holding you down. And Paul says, don't surrender that. For freedom, Christ made you free. Many of us have also known what it is to be slaves again to a certain type of action, something that we like deep down inside me, I long not to do that. And we've known that slavery. And so on one hand, the resounding yes of freedom as a Christian principle is, is Jesus died to make you free. 
do not become enslaved again to the yoke of slavery. But then, as I said, it is also complicated. This is what Jesus said, maybe an ethic that Paul has heard. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that freedom, or is it not freedom? It's both, right? To a degree, it's both. It's, it's freedom from sin, it's freedom from so many things, and yet it's, it's the yoke is with Jesus. It's slavery to Christ. In Corinthians, we read in chapter 16, you are not your own. I don't have ownership of me in this verse, in this passage. In, in Romans chapter 26, verse 22, and now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. There's this complicated relationship between freedom and not freedom in Paul's writing and in the whole New Testament. To a certain degree, yes, you and I are free, and to a certain degree, we're also not. Somewhere when George Orwell said freedom is slavery, even though he meant it in a different way, Paul might say, yeah, I think you're onto something there. Both, to a degree, are true. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Somewhere Paul says this, knowledge, learning more, it not only puffs up, but it has a tendency to do this. It has a tendency to talk to us internally about the right to claim our freedom. The way of love, it seems, does something different. The way of love gives us the freedom to surrender our rights. It gives us the freedom to surrender our rights. Paul says the relationship that you have internally as a body of people is deeply complex. There are times where your natural desire, my natural desire to get our own way, well, there's times where we have to actively work against that. And I had a fascinating conversation around this, of course, not around meat sacrifice to idols, because that's not something we need to focus on particularly today, but I, I, I was chatting with a group of friends just the other day about the divisive subject of Halloween. The, the conversation was, what do you teach your kids? And I never like to give people a black and white answer, it's a deep flaw, so I just pushed with some, some gentle questions. And he wanted to know how I saw this holiday that's become a central part of American culture. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Did you know it was a Christian holiday first? Do you feel it's been co-opted? Do you feel like it's co-option means that you need to opt out of it? Or does it mean that you need to reclaim it? What would it do? What would it look like for you to reclaim it? But we went on and on just pressing into this issue. And then we were joined by another friend who was very convinced that no follower of Jesus should take part in Halloween. Don't enter into it, just avoid it. And so we wrestled back and forth with what he had to say about it, and then this verse floated into view, and he said something like, well, you know what it says on matters of conscience, you should go with the weaker brother. And I said, but who's the weaker brother? You seem very certain about what you believe, and I'm pretty confused, so maybe, maybe you're supposed to join me in trick-or-treating with my kids just so they can be happy. But, but the truth was, we ended up with this tension. How do you know? How do you figure that out? And how do you wrestle with it together? 
And it seems quite simply what we read is this. Knowledge tends to make us very determined to claim our rights, whereas love seems that we should desire to give them away. When we think back to last week when Paul says, wouldn't it be better for you to be cheated? Wouldn't it be better for you to surrender? It doesn't naturally land well with us. It pushes us to a place sometimes we're uncomfortable with. But what I love about Paul, just like I love about Jesus, is that he reflects how he's done this over and over again in a personal way. He's someone that had all of these rights he could have claimed. He could have claimed money from the church in return for speaking, and he's never done it. He could have claimed a certain position, a certain sort of privilege, and he's never done that, all because he was determined to show that freedom isn't a means to claim rights. It's a, it's a way of giving them up. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I've made myself a slave to everyone does not seem like language we would use easily today. And that's who Paul is. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those who have not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but I'm under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became the weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Later he'll say this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What he would remind us, it seems over and over again, is this, you can't intentionally destroy another person with your knowledge and do it to the glory of God. Knowledge has a tendency to insist on its rights and love has a way of being able to surrender its rights. And then he finishes this section of the letter with these beautiful words in chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So question for us all. Today, 2022, Littleton, how do we put this into practice? Given that no meat sacrificed to idols, complicated questions all around, who is the weaker brother? He gives us some words of advice. Chapter 9, verse 24, 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul spent a considerable amount of time in Corinth, and, and during this period of history, the Corinthian games was the second most important games. There was the, the Olympic Games, which was a big deal, then the Corinthian Games, and, and so Paul's probably reflecting back, and he's writing to this church in Corinth saying, you know the games that happen every couple of years? People come from all over the place, and they train, and they train, and they train to achieve something. They do it to achieve something that doesn't matter, but, but you're training in the way of Jesus to do something that does matter, to be part of something that does matter. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. When I hear about life in the way of Jesus, 
When I hear about what it is to surrender rights instead of claim them, what I, when I hear what it is to walk in love instead of in knowledge, my tendency, and maybe your tendency as well, is to do something. I tend to go away from a service like this and say, you know what, I'm going to try harder than I ever tried before. I'm, I'm gonna step it up a gear. I'm gonna make this work. When we started this series, I, I shared you with my goal of, uh, of the cello. Because we're learning hard things, I said what I was gonna do is this. I was gonna take this borrowed cello and, and I was gonna learn to play Bach's cello suite, this beautiful piece of music. And when I told Teresa, my assistant, I said, do you think this will work as an illustration? She said, it depends how good you are at the cello. And I said, I've never played cello in my life. Um, this is new to me. And she said, huh, that, that may, may be interesting. Um, and, and so I, I said I was going to practice this piece. And, and, and when we started in week one, all I could play you was Jaws. And I'm not even sure I got the two notes from Jaws right, to be honest. I think it was off by a couple of pitches. And, but we got dun, 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 dun. And, and that was it. That's as far as we got. And I said I would keep working. And yet, I'll be honest, it's not gone as well as planned. A few weeks ago, my daughter came to me and she said, your violin is on the floor. I said, I don't have a violin. She said, okay, the thing in your office is on the floor. And I said, oh, the cello is on the floor. How did it get on the floor? And she said, I, I don't know. It just, just fell over. Um, and so I said, were you doing anything in the office? She said, I was writing on the whiteboard. I said, huh, by the chair, by the cello? And she said, yep. And I said, so did you knock the chair? She's like, yep. I said, is that when the cello fell over? She said, yep. But apparently it had nothing to do with her. It just completely <laughs> uncorrelated events. The cello that had stayed standing for weeks was now broken on the floor. It's semi-fixed and is easily fixable, but it hasn't been played. Because I just kind of haven't found time. <laughs> just have a busy life. And, and yet this is something that is hard to do that requires not just trying hard, it requires an intentionality to train and to learn. It requires actually practicing. The writer John Orberg talks about this in the relation to following Jesus. And he does it in the illustration of a marathon. Right now, if you were to come to me and say, let's run a marathon together, I don't know about you, but I can't run a marathon today, even if I try really, 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 really hard. I just don't have it in me. It's not about trying. It's not about the effort. I just don't have the stamina. I'm in that stage of life where I start running for a while and I'm like, oh, I thought I could run forever. And I can't. It's been 30 seconds. I'm just, that's where I am. And, and you may be somewhere different and that's great, but, but I'm not there where you are. Now, if you were to come to me and say, let's get up at four o'clock in the dark every morning for the next six months, and, and we'll start by doing half a mile together, and then we'll do two miles together, and then we'll do five miles together, and then we'll do nine, and then we'll do 13, and we'll do that a few times, and eventually, maybe you and I can get to a place of running a marathon together. But it's not gonna be because I try. It's gonna be because I train, and we train together. Now, I need to offer a clarification here. I have no desire to run a marathon with you. <laughs> just to feel out of the room, like don't come to me afterwards and say let's meet at four because I just am not interested. But, but the same principle, we might say, goes to doing something hard like living in the way of Jesus. 
as we've talked about what it is to do that, as we've talked about what it is to choose pathways of love over pathways of knowledge, to choose the other over self, to choose to not claim our rights, but to, to have the freedom to give up our rights, that doesn't happen because you try. It happens because you and I, in partnership with God, we actually train. So I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're going to begin with just a contemplation. I'm going to invite you first, not into trying, but into intention. And I'm going to invite us all to reflect on the fact that for a lot of us, if we're honest, the world revolves around self. My world revolves around me a lot of the time, even when I think it doesn't. And so we get to contemplate with this prayer on the screen. Christ came in humility to share our lives. Forgive our pride. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ came with good news for all people. Forgive our silence. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Christ came in love to a world of suffering. Forgive our self-centeredness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. For a moment, as we reflect, feel free to play with those words. We're going to do that for a moment, and you are invited into training, not to trying. You are invited into the way of love, not the way of knowledge. You are invited into a community that is not about claiming rights, but about learning to surrender them. And we get to do that together. Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to sing one more time, would you speak to us? Would you remind us that we're invited into the difficult way of Jesus? We do not have the ability to do that even if we try our hardest. And yet you offer us the joy of partnering with you in this life. Thank you, Father, that you have loved us and created us for the way of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made that way possible by your life, your death, and your resurrection. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you long to sustain us in that way. For a moment, just take few seconds to voice your own prayer, whether out loud verbally or silently. Begin the process of allowing God to speak to you individually. God, in this moment, I pray that a couple of things happen. I pray that whatever is just my words would drift away and your voice would speak to your people including to me, who needs to hear it. I pray for those of us that feel that yoke of slavery to sin, to our own self-centeredness, that we would feel it remove. I pray for those of us that are comfortable. You would bring that affliction that stirs us up, moves us to intention, 
and to partnering with you. For those of us that are afflicted with all that is going on in our lives and around us, as we sing, would you bring comfort? Thank you that you are present with your people. Would you stand with me as we sing one last song? If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.